longer and longer lives are becoming the norm. Understandably, caregiving and employment are bound to become a clash of responsibilities. Caregivers and employers working together can avoid complicating these competing responsibilities because in the end, what's good for the employee is good for the employer, right? Nearly half of caregiving employees are forced to leave the workforce due to caregiving needs. Truly, we're faced with a dilemma. Employers are unaware of what services employees need. Employees are afraid to talk about their competing responsibilities. It's a difficult conversation, but one that is necessary. How would you go about addressing and solving this looming crisis? If you're looking for answers, my conversation with Larry in this episode is the place to start looking. This episode is brought to you by Family History Film. Visit myfamilyhistoryfilm.com to find out how they can preserve your family memories in a fascinating documentary film. Welcome to Fading Memories, a supportive podcast for those caring for a loved one with memory loss. With me today is Larry Nysenson. I think I actually got that right for a change. Yay, me. And he is with CareGen. We're going to talk about caregiving and employment and some of the things we need to do so that we can care for our loved ones and still work and earn a living and keep our economy going. So thanks for joining me, Larry. You got it, Jennifer. It's my pleasure. So tell me a little bit about yourself first. We didn't, we've been chatting for half an hour and I don't think I know how you got into the care end of things. Absolutely. And um, like, like you, I am a, a caregiver. I was thrust into it um, with the, the typical call, right? We all get the call that says, I know your life was on a path but it's now going to go in a completely different direction and you may or may not recover on that path, but here's what's happening. And the way it happened for me um, actually has a good ending to it. So I'll, I'll give you the, the end of the book as I give you the beginning of the book. And my father, I uh, was driving down the road with my mother. He was in his mid seventies and uh, started to drive erratically. And as it turned out, my mother, who is much smarter than medically anyway, than she should be, said something doesn't look right and drove my father to the hospital where they found out he had an advanced brain tumor and uh, everything was fine until it wasn't right. And so he had a brain surgery and they had a hundred percent recovery from the brain surgery, except for one little problem. He was paralyzed from the neck down and yeah, didn't expect that to happen either. And a doctor said, there's no reason it should happen, but here we were planning on, just a normal, it was a Tuesday afternoon and we were planning on a normal Tuesday. We were going to do whatever we were going to do the rest of the week and work and then see each other and have a good time. And now instead, my mother, my brother and I were trying to figure out what do you do with somebody who is paralyzed from the neck down, who can't speak, who's basically in a coma and they don't know what the prognosis is. Now, fortunately for us, I told you the story ends well. My father Um, after about nine months of having to learn how to speak again and walk again and all that stuff, recovered about 98%. Matter of fact, the only thing that he had as a residual was he had what they call a drop foot, right? His, uh, his right foot doesn't pick up all the way. And so 
he ends up wearing a brace on to help him keep his foot up because otherwise he'd have the second biggest problem, which is what most older folks have, which is they trip and fall and hurt themselves, right? Mm -hmm. But he was really fortunate because he had a long-term care insurance policy. So when I talk about caregiving, my, one of the first things I say to people is we were incredibly fortunate. We were incredibly fortunate that the outcome was positive. As I said, he's now, my father turned 85 in May and he is as cantankerous as he was uh, for my whole life. And so he's everything he should be. And we didn't have to worry at no point did we have to worry like most caregivers do on how to pay for things. He had a long-term care insurance policy, so money wasn't the issue. It was just a matter of emergent care and what to do. And so um, I broke into this industry 25 years ago in the insurance business um, and came to Genworth to um, help them build out a portfolio of products and services around caregiving and the financing of aging. And so um, it's something that's near and dear to my heart. It is near and dear to most of the folks, including our CEO um, and all of our senior leaders. We're all caregivers in one way or another. And so we bring to the idea and the solution, not just the technical or academic end, but we're all uh, we bring the empathy of people who provide care on an ongoing basis too. And so we think we, we kind of understand what the average caregiver goes through. Oh, that's true. We were blessed. My dad, we did not, he looked into long-term care insurance, but by the time he did it, it was too expensive, which I think is most people's problem. But he had investments. His parents had quite a bit of money. My grandmother's actually still alive. She is 102. Oh my God. Yeah. God bless her. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, she's doing pretty good considering she's mostly blind from glaucoma and now she's very profoundly hard of hearing, but still stubborn as all get out. Um, definitely has slowed way down, but Hey, at 102, totally entitled. But my, she and my grandfather grew up poor and he got a master's degree and he was in, um, it was like he was in like energy and um waste water and oh i think i could remember better but it's been he's been gone since 97 so it's been a little while and so he was very good at earning and keeping which is i've been good at earning and keeping so i take after him in that respect and she worked she was a librarian at the school school district and they just they did very well. And so they would give money to the three sons and my dad had investments. So he did really well. Um, and then that is what we used to help take care of my mom. It was the investments. We rented out her house, her social security and a small infusion from his investments paid for her care home for three years. And we had plenty of money for her. We expected her to live much longer than three years like 10 to 15. yeah so we had we had enough money to survive with her living there even though those places are not cheap um until she, till she died which like i said we expected it to be a little bit longer than it was so you know that's we were blessed that way but i know people that you know move in with their parents because 
that's the only way they can make things work. And it's just, I think, I think it's important to talk about end of life desires and stuff so that we can start planning for it much younger than, you know, 60 or 70. For sure. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do, um, I'm going to give a little bit of a plug to a study that has nothing to do with my company, has nothing to do with selling or anything. It's about the cost of care. So for 16 years, Genworth has uh, been the thought leader in the financing of, of aging. This is what we do. And if your listeners go to Genworth, G-E-N-W-O-R-T-H.com, Genworth.com, they can click on the tab that says cost of care. And the cost of care is this study that we've done that looks at the cost of providing care, either at home, an assisted living facility, or a nursing home in all 50 states and broken down by the geography of that state. So in Northern California, as an example, you clearly have a different cost structure than somebody living in Huntington Beach, right? If you were to go on to um, the genworth.com site and look at it, you would be able to find out how much will it cost to take care of my loved one when they need some sort of help. And we know that seven out of 10 Americans over the age of 65 are going to have a long-term care event. There's no, that's just the statistical aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And so if you haven't planned for it and you're right in saying, most people don't really think about it until it's too late, right? If, if you plan and you decide you want to buy insurance like some do, that's great. If you plan and say, well, we've saved our entire lives and we're going to use that money, that's okay too. However you want to cover, as long as you know what it's going to cost and have a plan. Because when your loved one becomes an emergent care recipient, right? When you get that phone call, the last thing you want to have to do is figure out how am I going to pay to care for them? Your attention needs to be focused exclusively on providing that great care and helping them figure it out, not worried about, oh my gosh, I'm going to go bankrupt in the process. Yeah, we were kind of lucky. My husband worked in banking for 20 years. And we, our, our call, it wasn't actually a phone call, but our situation happened on a Tuesday as well. So I think that's kind of funny. We went that to is... visit my parents to put up Christmas decorations and just spend time with them. And my husband walked in and my dad said, oh, so how's the credit union business treating you? And my husband's like, oh crap, I haven't been in that business in 13 years. <laughs> and it turns out my dad was diabetic. His donated kidney was failing. He didn't want to go back on dialysis, which was fine. I knew that I accepted that. Uh, I didn't, I don't still accept the fact that he didn't bother to tell anybody. He just figured he'd die, which, okay, great. You know, that would have been really lovely considering my mom wouldn't have realized what was going on. So not a, not a good plan there. And, you know, we had cop, my sister and I had copies of their trust which to me is gobbledygook because I don't read legalese and that's that kind of stuff just is not in my wheelhouse. But mm -hmm. my husband was smart enough to know because he'd been in banking for 20 years, basically how to get around the system to make sure that we had money to pay for caregivers for my mom while my dad was in the hospital and then 24 hour caregivers while my dad was on hospice, which if you've ever priced that, that was about $700 a day. You know, between my sister and I, we didn't have $700 a day for two months. Yeah. So, you know, we were lucky that way. You know, of course, it rubbed my sister's fur the wrong way 
I'm not ever sure why, but you know how families can be. So, oh yes, <laughs> you know it was like he did something illegal, which no, he was taking care of his in-laws, which was necessary, and he was taking care of us, my sister and I, mostly me, you know, because he knew like I would just like in five minutes try to figure out some the finances and how to pay for it, and, and then there would have been an explosion because I like I said I don't do that stuff. I I did all the re not well I didn't do research, but I found the hospice company and I found the caregiving company and I had to do all that in 24 hours. So I had to make those decisions with gut instinct, which is scary. So, you know, if we can have a conversation, it's a very scary thing. Yeah. If we can avoid people having to go through that stuff, that would, that would make my day. And so that statistic of seven and 10 people needing care in the latter half of their life, that's 70% of us people. Let's that's not, that's not difficult math. So we're all going to need care. We don't want to be a burden on our family. So. Uh, and I'm a, I'm not going to inundate us all with statistics, but I, I'm always mesmerized by them because they're shocking. They're just shocking. The average caregiver puts out over $10,000 a year from their own pocket. So as if things weren't tough enough for most people, now they're spending eight or $900 out of their own pocket every month on caregiving right and and so the pressure for most caregivers is just uh incredible and so we we at gen worth are, are trying to do everything and uh care scout is a company that we bought that is a care uh they're care coordination experts and so they really align to helping folks figure out oh my gosh i just got the call what do i do how do i figure it out and so um, we bought them about 10 years ago and they've been a great addition to uh, the mission that Genworth is on. Well, so right now we know there's over 16 million family caregivers just in the United States, which I personally feel is probably an undercount just in my three years of caregiving and podcasting. I know a lot of people don't, they don't give themselves that classification. You know, I, and I think spouses probably don't consider themselves caregivers because, you know, it's your spouse who take care of them. That's just what you do. You know, you don't put a title on it. So, and then it's, it's in the billions of dollars of free care. It is. I'm going to, all right. So I promised I wasn't going to give you <laughs> stats, but, but there's some, there, because when you hear the numbers, it's incredible. And you're, you're a hundred percent right about, about who considers themselves a caregiver. So I do a fair amount of public speaking and I do a lot of public seminars and I'll say by a show of hands without describing a caregiver, I just say by a show of hands, you know, who here is a caregiver and a few hands will go up. And then I start to describe who caregivers are, right? Here are some of the activities you may be doing. You don't consider yourself a caregiver. Are you helping a neighbor with shopping, right? Just that question alone these days right? Where you've got so many who are immunocompromised and people are doing shopping for others, right? Who goes over and mows your neighbor's lawn or your loved one's lawn? Who's doing the, who's paying taxes? Who's doing the bills? Who's doing just odd odds and ends for your family? And by the time I go through about six or seven of these examples, the right number of hands are up and it's about 10% of the population. So think of it this way. We have about 40 million unpaid caregivers and there are about squiggly line about 400 million americans which so you've got about a 10 percent of the population are true unpaid 
caregivers. And the cost of those caregivers in US productivity, right? So if you want to try and put, well, what's it worth? The stat, it's a staggering number. It's worth almost $25 billion a year to companies in lost productivity. So when we say that there's a cost associated with it, Jennifer, it's unfathomable. You can't even get your arms around it. And since more than the, the number of people turning 65 is over 10,000 a day. Mm-hmm. So over 10,000 a day are turning 65 in the United States. And that's going to continue for the next decade. Think about how many more caregivers there are going to be as we figure out how to take care of our aging population. We, it is a crisis, as you've said, without question. Yeah, I'm not good at that kind of math. <laughs> yeah, let's just say it's a lot. How's that? Yeah. Well, like I said before we started recording and I've had other guests say this, you know, we're all focused on the coronavirus pandemic. And now this is July 7th, 2020 that we're recording this. And, you know, we're kind of getting the message of, oh, well, we're just going to have to learn how to live with it, which I'm not real happy with that message. But then when you, you know, we, you think about it with like Alzheimer's and dementia and other chronic diseases that require somebody to really help take care of you in your latter years, you know, that's exactly what we kind of do. And a lot of people don't even acknowledge that they're caregivers. They don't reach out for help. And I, I personally think that's going to become even a bigger problem as we get more and more millennials who are in the earlier stages of their adult life, the earlier stages of their careers and trying to raise family. So you definitely got a bigger sandwich generation with them. You know, my sister's four years younger than I am and she's got school age kids. So she was trying to visit mom and take care of mom's needs and deal with her kids. And I, as I said, my daughter's an adult. So it was, I, a lot of the, like all of the doctor visits fell on me and a lot more of it fell on me because I didn't have school age kids to deal with. And I took on a lot of that because it was like, well, it only seems reasonable because I do have more time, but had my mom not been in a care home, that would have been really ugly because my daughter moved out a month before my dad passed away, which was six weeks before my mom moved into the care home. So it's like, I was not ready to have somebody else move in with me. (laughs) And, you know, it was like, oh, okay, we're finally able to do things. And then we weren't. And then we're finally able to do things this year and then we're not again. So it's just really, you know, the, it, it, it is. And this COVID-19 impact is, as you mentioned, is really dramatic. I, I know I mentioned this earlier to you, um, but we, Jen, were sponsored. I told you we're uh, thought leaders in the space. And so we did a consumer sentiment um, survey that was just completed in May around the impacts of COVID-19 and what extra pressure this is putting on people because we know that more pressure leads to greater isolation, leads to both caregiver dilemma and stress, which is certainly not helpful, right? And overnight, because caregiving gets extended, right? Now there's all these kids that are home from school. Now spouses are home. So where you, one spouse might be retired and the other is still working, now they're both in the house, right? And the kids are there. And maybe you've got, God forbid, you had a loved one who was at a nursing home you, many of the people said, I want to get my loved ones out, so we're going to move them in temporarily. And So we went from having 
40 million caregivers, right? This 10% number that uh, our survey identified that one in three Americans became emergent caregivers overnight. One out of every three is now shielding somebody and, and sort of working on their caregiving roles. And they're likely were as unprepared as ever. How many parents are ready to be teachers? Yeah. What if you have three kids that are in different ages and different groups and you, you've got to learn all sorts of classes you never thought you were going to have to learn, right? And if it's in the case of my family, you have to also end up being the headmaster and school disciplinarian somewhere along the way. <laughs> and so there's all of this pressure um, and with no, um, with really no vaccine in sight, who knows how long this extra stress is going to be um, in in the family dynamics? And so, if they if your listeners go to genworth.com, they can also read about what we uncovered in this extra stress for caregivers. Yeah, stress stress is terrible for your brain. And with all of these, as you refer to them, I like the term emergent caregivers. There's not a support system. There was barely a support system for the family caregivers of people with Alzheimer's and dementia. But now it's like, I don't even know how you would find a, or create a support system for what's going on right now. <laughs> everybody, it, it's, everybody's situation is so unique. I mean, they're similar, but they're so different. It's just like, oh my gosh. It, it, it really is. And um, again, according to the survey, over 50% of the respondents that we spoke to said that their number one issue, their number one concern, the greatest concern they had was stress level because they didn't see a way to mitigate it, right? There was nothing that they saw coming down the road that was going to alleviate that stress. And so we also know as caregivers that isolation is one of the, the largest things. You feel like there's nobody you can confide in. There's nobody to talk to. And um, so we, we try and bring some resources, as I know you do also, to the table and say, look, you're not alone out here, especially as it relates to Alzheimer's and dementia. Right? We know that unfortunately it's a disease that, in, that impacts many and there are plenty of support groups out there for those that are looking for it or need it. You definitely go to the um, Alzheimer's Association, ALZ.org, my personal support group. We've been online, you know, May, June, July, we're, we'll be online through September and then obviously they're gonna reevaluate, but I have a feeling we're gonna be online till the end of the year for sure. And one thing a lot of the attendees have said, you know, we would really like to continue to have this option to meet in person or to have the meetings streamed because it's so difficult to get out. And, you know, sometimes it was just, it was a lot of a challenge. So I think I'm hoping that they continue to do the stream, the meeting online, even when we can meet in person, because I think that's a big benefit. It's something that we've um, learned to do well in this shut down kind of world we've been living in but i also have seen how it's impacted my friends and some of some of the people in my group have been guests talking about their loved one and it's it's just very detrimental to both the caregiver and the person living with the cognitive impairment it's just the upending of their their schedule and the lack of stimulation and just isolation even though they're not alone alone is just it's it's in sped up the decline it it is for sure i mean they um i didn't mention it earlier but i was a caregiver for my grandmother who um we lost to alzheimer's 
Um, and so the thing, the thing about their schedules is it really is so important to maintain a consistency, right? A dependability. And, and the coronavirus has shown us that that's the last thing that's going to occur. You're right. You've got a, you know, there is no version of a new normal yet. I, I, the other thing that I would, I would just remind your listeners of, I'm sure they're already aware of it, but it's easier, it's easier to hear from me than it is to remind themselves perhaps is the most important thing for them is to figure out how to take care of themselves, right? How can they walk away? What can, what can I do? Even if it's just for an hour, even if it's just to go sit in the car and drive somewhere because, you know, you don't want to expose your loved one to what might be out and about the importance of clarity for yourself, the importance of taking care of yourself. We, we speak to a lot of employers about some of the services that we provide because we, we provide them for companies that want to give caregiving services to their employees. And um, one of the things that I uh, often preach about and have been accused perhaps of being somewhat missionary in is reminding people that even in this craziness, use your time off from work. You have to step away. You cannot continue to go 24 seven, 365. And for those that are working from home and, and caregiving, you feel like, well, how can I, you almost feel guilty if you sit down on the couch and put your feet up, right? I've got so much work to do. My family needs so much for me. There's always the never ending list of responsibilities, but truthfully amongst those top priorities has to be taking care of yourself. You're no good to anybody if your stress level starts to make you sick, right? And so um, I would encourage folks to, to make sure that they're taking some time for themselves when they can. I worry about people, especially if, like you said, they're working from home, maybe they've got teenagers or younger adults at home that are making them insane as it is, and they're trying to take care of their parent. I worry about just the increase of you know, verbal abuse or even physical abuse of any of the family members, because, you know, when people's stress levels boil over, unfortunately, that's a place that people end up. They don't mean to, but, you know, it's just, it's, we really need to figure out how to, how to help all these caregivers. And maybe this pandemic, as small as it is compared to Alzheimer's, maybe it will help us learn how how we need to read, maybe rejigger our lives so that we can work from home a little more so that we can, you know, monitor mom perhaps, or, you know, maybe it will help people not have to retire earlier. You know, if they have the options of working from home and, you know, it's just, I see a big problem coming in our future with, with our economy and employment and caregiving, I think it's all going to collide like a big giant car wreck. It it for sure is going to collide. It has to, right? When you have that many caregivers in the workforce and you have a population that continues to accelerate in terms of aging, right? There's no chance that it doesn't collide. That's why services like our CareScout, this service that we provide to employers is becoming even more popular because employers recognize, again, in the pre-COVID world where unemployment was ridiculously low, right? And nobody, nobody wanted to see their best employees leave. One of the things we know about caregivers that are in the workforce, 
is that they are amongst the most dedicated employees. They're really good at working odd hours and getting assignments done and taking care of everything because that's their nature, right? They, they're take care of things type people. And so they don't let anything slip. And employers don't want to see those people leave the workforce. The problem is if they don't offer a caregiving service, if they don't help these employees, we know that over half of the um, over half of the employees that are caregivers end up leaving the workforce. They leave because they have no choice. They leave because they have, you know, they're not going to let their loved ones suffer for a job. That's not their nature, right? They're family first type people. And so they end up leaving the workforce at an alarmingly um, high rate. And I'm sorry, I said over half. It's actually, it's a, almost 40%. It's 39% of the people leave the workforce because of their caregiving responsibility. And mostly because they don't have a choice. They don't know what to do. They, they're going to take care of their loved ones. So we're faced with this dilemma, though, where caregivers traditionally, and I know I fell into this category myself, you don't like to tell your employer about your caregiving responsibilities because you think it makes you less valuable. That's human nature. You say, well, my employer is going to think I'm really not committed to the job. I'm not going to get a promotion because they think I have these other responsibilities. And there are lots of statistics around the impact to the employee in their careers. We won't even talk about that. But what happens is employers want to help these days, but they say when we talk to them, none of my employees have expressed a, an interest or that they're caregivers. So we don't want to put a service in that we don't think our employees are going to use. And so we have this chicken and an egg dilemma. Uh, one of the things that I encourage employees to do is to reach out to their HR, reach out to their manager and say, I love what I do, right? I understand it's a difficult conversation, by the way. I love what I do. I want you to know I'm as committed as I can, but I have these other responsibilities also. If there's any help you could provide me, if we had any support groups, that would really be a wonderful thing. Just to create awareness so that companies understand that that $25 billion a year of lost productivity that I talked about is impacting their bottom line. If they don't hear from their employees, they're not going to know about it. The thing that I encourage employers to do is to start surveying your workforce. Ask them through anonymous surveys. Now you can do them for free, right? From SurveyMonkey, you don't have to pay for a survey. Do an anonymous survey to your employees and ask them what matters to them. And they're going to be, I believe most employers are going to be surprised by the number of caregivers in their workforce today. And if they don't fix it, Jennifer, you're absolutely right. It is headed for a crash course somewhere down the yeah, road. Yeah, I'm not, I, it's one of the reasons I'm glad that A, my daughter is an adult and that I'm older and I've always worked for myself. So I'm not going to be part, I'm just going to be a witness to that collision. I don't want to be, but you know, I, I see we have another situation that's that will, I hope, accelerate the conversation I think employees and employer, employers need to have is that because of COVID, half of the daycares in the United States are closing permanently. And I guess there was already a daycare crisis prior to this pandemic. 
And there are a lot of women that are being forced out of the workforce because, you know, you can't hang the kid on a hook, you know, eight, 10 hours a day. And if they can't go back to school in the fall, now you've got a problem with the kids who didn't need as much daycare. And it's just, ay, 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 it's a disaster. So we got that disaster on top of now we've got people who are afraid to put their loved one in a care home. And so they're moving them home or they're keeping them home. And so now some people have both sides of the spectrum to deal with and they're trying to support everybody. And there's just not enough magic wand for that scenario. We were already, you're hundred percent right. We were already under pressure on every aspect of it, right? So we didn't have enough paid caregivers. It was a huge supply issue, right? We did not have nearly enough paid caregivers. We don't have enough people who have the money for paid caregiving. So that puts more pressure on. Now factor in exactly what you just said. And unless we can figure out a way to multiply at no cost, because we can't afford any more people, right? Unless we can figure that out, we are in for uh, a host of trouble. Now there is though, um, some good news. Yay. Right? The good news, because there's always good news. The good news is um, the, the advancements made through technology, telemedicine being a great example of it, right? Has really changed the dynamics of healthcare and made, and made uh, patients and doctors and the healthcare industry much more efficient. Now, for many things, you don't have to drive to wait in a waiting room to sit around, right? You schedule an appointment. Most of the healthcare companies, the Aetnas of the world, if you will, right? are now covering telemedicine so that they're now really seeing the opportunities there. In the long-term care in the aging space, you have so many advancements in the way we monitor people. So for example, we have now wearables, right? We can put devices on people so that we can notice when their gait is off. We can notice if they haven't moved very uh, moved much recently and you can put a phone call in we can we have medicine minders right where we know if somebody's taken their pills so all of these things you know in the true version of smart homes if we can get to that right really will help um, people care for themselves and their loved ones more efficiently we just have to get past this pandemic and get back to just regular old caregiving. I don't know when that's going to be or even what regular old caregiving will look like, but this too shall pass. Um, and hopefully some of the enhancements that we've seen will stick with us. Things like, again, telemedicine is a great example of that. Yeah, I was trying to find a solution for dragging my mom to the doctor, you know, her, the caregivers in the residence that she lived in would call me and say, oh, I think mom might have a, a UTI. And I, I learned the hard way that it was almost better to wait for a secondary indication of a UTI, like a fever, because I would drive from my house to pick her up and then I'd have to make up an excuse to get her in the car and get her to the doctor. And then when she figured out we were going to the doctor, that was never fun. And then I always had to remind them that, you know, we could not do a urine test the way you know they would hand me a specimen cup and I would just laugh and I'm like you don't remember the last time we were here we did it like a and so that was always super frustrating and if I got frustrated then mom got hostile it was just like it was a disaster yeah. and I was looking for um, I am in 
a policy advocate with Alzheimer's Association for um, the Northern California and Northern Nevada chapter. And our um, team leader, when her mother-in-law was in a care home, they, she was in Southern California, they actually got like a concierge doctor that went and saw her regularly. And it was the same doctor. And she said it wasn't cheap. It was like $6,000 a year. But she looked at me and this was kind of funny. She looked at me, this was in February of this year. She looked at me and she goes, I know from the things you've told me, your mom can afford this. You need to check into it. So I did. And there's a company called Heal, H-E-E-L, no, H-E-A-L, mm -hmm. not the kind that's on the bottom of your foot. And they do exactly what I needed, but they don't service the way out here in the suburbs, which was frustrating. So that was in February. I am searching around for, you know, somebody to go see my mom or something. The telemedicine through her insurance, you know, provider, her her healthcare provider. I don't know. That was a disaster. I mean, it was like sign up here, but you couldn't sign up here. It was just it was a joke. And she passed away at the end of March, and in the end of April her doctor messaged me through their service that says, Oh, we're doing telemedicine now. And I just wanted to drive over there to his office and slap him upside the head. Right. <laughs> I'm like, right. You're like, hold on. I'm going to meet you in the parking lot. I'm going to show you telemedicine. Yeah. yeah I'm going to tell you. And he, you know, yeah. he was a really nice guy, but he was terrible with her. You know, it's just, that's my other issue is we got to train. And you said your daughter's going to hopefully be attending medical school in the fall. She's accepted. We just don't know what attending is going to look like. We need a much bigger, and this is a whole other episode, but I'll digress for a second. We need a huge amount of training for dealing with people with cognitive issues, which I would think would also There's include no. all, uh, autism. Because he would walk in, he'd there. bustle in the office and go, well, I'm not sure if we have everything, time to do everything, blah, 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 and she would immediately get hostile, which never resulted in any kind of successful event. So <laughs> It is. Um it is for sure a specialty that needs to, to continue to evolve, right? And as, as um, our understanding of Alzheimer's and dementia and other cognitive diseases, as, as our understanding evolves, the, medic, the medicine has to evolve and the, the doctors themselves and the treatment rooms and all of the protocols need to really, you know, as we were saying, you know, one of the things that, that has become certainly known and really relied upon is the stability and, and having a set schedule and doing things very rigidly, right? But we didn't always know that, right? Doctors didn't always know that. And, and as they learned it, facilities and caregivers started to really incorporate that into the day. And, it, and I know in my grandmother's case, um, that made all the difference in the world for a period of time. And then unfortunately, towards the end, it just the end is the end. There's really nothing you could do. But for a very decent period of time, that scheduling and stability gave her a sense, to your point, Jennifer, of calmness, right? She sort of knew what was coming. She may not have remembered lots, but she knew what was coming. And, and we just need to continue to do research. And, I, and you certainly are aware of the amount, the millions and millions of dollars that they pour into Alzheimer's research. Um, we're huge corporate sponsors and we, and in the Genworth is based in Richmond, Virginia, in our Richmond chapter of Alzheimer's. Um, we are um, very big corporate citizens, if you will. They're both 
from a company standpoint, more importantly, individuals. Um, and we're very involved in the Alzheimer's Association and we continue to hope that they will find uh, a cure for this disease and continue to do all the great work that they're doing. They are trying. So how should we help people have these uncomfortable conversations with their HR? Because I think, I think this is kind of rooted in our, our American culture. You know, you don't, I mean, we, we've kind of slowly evolved to accepting that, you know, we've got moms in the workforce and now we've got dads that are much more hands-on than they used to be back when I was a kid. We've, we've evolved to accepting that we kind of support that, but I think people are still a little bit reluctant even to mention the needs that they have with their kids. And it's even worse because we know kids are going to become more independent. And when you're taking care of somebody like your grandmother or my mom, we know, unfortunately, the reverse is the case is that they're going to need more and more of your time. And, you know, you've got an employer that's looking at you for a promotion, but in the back of their head, they're like, but I know her mom's going to take up more and more of her time, which means she'll have less time for us. How do we kind of short circuit that culture? Because I feel like we need a 180 on our culture, like overnight, which is not doable and it would not really be fun. It's necessary, but not sure it would be pleasurable to live through. <laughs> Yeah, so, so here's, what, here's what I would say. The, the world we live in today, having nothing to do, forget, forget the, the COVID for just one second. Forget COVID-19 if we could, if we could just sort of close our eyes. What I would say to you is that the employer world, the employment world that we live in today through regulation, through evolution, of the employer space and just through what I would describe as a shift by most employers towards a more empathetic view of wellness, right? Some of the catchphrases that we hear now are, are wellness programs. Many companies, if not every company I've come across, all have EAPs, right? Employee assistance programs. These programs are designed to help employees with these caregiving responsibilities with some of the sort of difficulties of life that normally companies, you know, 20 years ago and 30 years ago didn't really respond or care about. So the first thing employees have to understand is the world we're in today, their employers really do want to help. So not to say every company, you could have a jerk for a boss, right? That's possible. You could work for a company that is one of the few that hasn't evolved. But most of the companies, and certainly most of the larger ones, have evolved. As a matter of fact, um, there was a study that I was reading uh, about a week or two ago that looked at HR professionals, right? So this was a survey of human resource professionals. And they said to them, what do you think matters? What are the things that you're um, really looking for? And what they said is that over the next five years, they expected a huge jump in the amount of programs that they have around wellness, around employee wellness, around financial well-being. All of these things meant to promote strong mental health issues to, to really provide their employees with all of the goods and services they need to be just good, solid citizens and good employees. If, if 
the first step is the employers doing that. Then the second step has to be an employee willing to put his hand up and say, here's the things I need. Now, fortunately, this is where I was saying the regulation comes into play. Even if you worked for somebody who said, oh my God, I'm not doing that. They're not going to, they're not going to harass an employee who says I'm a caregiver, right? The old days of an employee worrying about being fired or being denied something because they've alerted their boss. Things like the Family Leave Act, right, which allows people to take time off, is an example of where the regulation has come in to provide this sort of mesh of a structure for employees that have other responsibilities. And employers are embracing that. Employers aren't saying, forget it, I'm not interested, you're in trouble. So employees have to have a little bit of faith in this. If they're looking for actual steps that they can take, if they go to our CareScout page, it's CareScout, one word, carescout.com, they can find some of our learning library pieces there. And some of those pieces will help them have those conversations. Um, or they can reach out to me directly also. And um, you can find me on uh, Twitter at L Nisenson, at L-N-I-S-E-N-S-O-N. Um, or you can email me directly at larry.nisenson, N-I-S-E-N-S-O-N, at genworth.com. And I'm happy to help out. I'll make sure those are all hot links. Can you tell I haven't worked in the corporate world since the late 80s? <laughs> I am super jealous. Although if my boss is listening, I'm only kidding. <laughs> see, the world that I left to work in the family business and then for myself, is 100% different than what I'm hearing this year in 2020, which makes me happy. But, you know, my, my view of corporate America obviously is a little bit stuck in basically 1990 <laughs> when I left. <laughs> yes, we've, there's been a little bit of a, there's been a little bit of movement in that, in, in what the world has come to. But in some ways, you know, the, Things change to some degree, right? But they also stay pretty static. Um, one of the things that uh, is certainly still runs pretty strong through most corporations is this notion of work-life balance, right? That was really starting to shift in the 90s to people, you know, companies saying, I don't care if you don't work 80 hours a week. Again, most companies, not all companies, most companies, we want good we want good, recharged, energized, enthusiastic, passionate employees. And so we recognize we can't ask you to work 80 hours a week and get that from you. That evolution, that idea has still, is still there. What's happened is the evolution of services provided by companies, though, Jennifer, has really evolved to try and help provide some better work-life balance for people, too. So it's kind of it's cool. I've been in this business now for um, 26 years and I started off before I came to corporate America, I owned a restaurant. So I did a little bit of my own business as an entrepreneur. And, um, when I came into, uh, the corporate world, it was a little bit of a, you know, an opening experience to me, but I would say that the corporations for the most part really have done a nice job of embracing, um, employee morale and compassionate and compassion and empathy for their employees and their loved ones. That's really, really good to hear. And I do think that 
especially since we're still living through this COVID work from home shift that happened overnight. I think a, I think there's going to be a lot of changes that, unfortunately, the pandemic pretty much fast tracked. So that's a positive on living through a pandemic that I never expected to live through something like this. You know, and I think we've, we're learning a lot about you know work-life balance and caregiving and taking care of ourselves you know it's it's we're kind of getting a fire hose of information all at once unfortunately exactly exactly so this has been really good and i'm i'm encouraged that you know i just recently talked to two millennials that are in the care providing industry they've also been caregivers so this is really positive to hear when i think about talking to them. One of them is just a little bit older than my own daughter. And, you know, it's nice to have like some, some hope on the horizon for positive changes so that people aren't having to quit their careers to take care of their mom or, you know, retire abruptly to take care of their spouse. And, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to know we're evolving in the right direction. We, we certainly are. And here's the last statistic that I'm going to throw. Um, but it might be, again, it's one of those that just sort of jumps out at you. So we talked about these 40 million caregivers, right? These unpaid, 40 million unpaid caregivers. The crazy thing about that is we think of them as people who are in their 50s and older, right? Caring for aging parents and caring for their aging spouses, et cetera. Actually, um, one out of four caregivers is a millennial. So when you think about the number of caregivers that are out there and then look at them as millennials and think about the impact to their financial, their personal, their career life, all of the things that are delayed, that are missed, um, that is part of the story as to why we brought this Care Scout service to the employer marketplace so that we could help employers and employees, right? not have to be sidetracked out of their career, not have to leave the workforce and not, not save for retirement and spend their life savings, but give the employee an opportunity to grow their career while they're caregivers. And because so many of them are millennials, we really think the impact to the employer and to society as a whole is, is really significant if we can help accomplish that. There is one thing I read or heard recently and I, I wish I remembered exactly where it was because I'm probably going to bang, bang it up a little bit, but it was when you're in the workforce, it's good to almost have a, an, you know, a colleague who is sort of your caregiver. So if you get a call that says, mom fell, we've rushed her to the hospital and you have to like drop what you're doing and rush out the door they can slide in behind you and kind of pick up the slack on some of the projects you're doing until the crisis is over. And I thought, man, that's, that makes so much sense. And if it's just planned that way and you know, and it could be a kid falling off the playground equipment at school or getting hurt sports or dance or whatever, you know, it just makes sense to like support each other in all the aspects of our lives, working, caregiving, you know, socializing. Absolutely. The, the challenge for that, which is, it's, is a great idea, right? The challenge is that so many companies these days are running lean on employees, 
that we're already asking them to do more than what might be their traditional job, which again, adds more pressure into an already pressurized system that what we, what we think is really the ultimate in what an employer can do is provide expertise. And that's what our care scout company is because they're in the care management business. We want employees that are able to just pick up a phone. You pick up a phone, you dial an 800 number and you let my company care scout go to work for the employee. We go to work finding you if you need daycare, if you need somebody to do modifications, if you need somebody to come take your loved one to the doctor, so you just need somebody in ambulatory services. We do all of the work for you so that your employees can concentrate on the caregiving and the daily responsibility of their job, not trying to solve for all of these things. And so, um, but you're right, it is, it is a dilemma for sure that needs to be addressed because it's only going to amp up in terms of the numbers and the, the people impacted by this. So um, anyway, that's, uh, that's our story and we're sticking to it. Well, it's a good one. And I just have one quick last question on this care scout. Is that something a, an individual could buy into or is it specifically for employers? Right now it's only for employers. It's brand, it's brand new. We've, um, we brought it to market a little less than a year ago. And the reason we're concentrating on the employer space is I told you this is where it gets a little bit missionary for me. We, we want to make sure that we are trying to benefit society as a whole, right? And so bringing it to the employer allows us to provide these services over, you know, thousands and thousands of people. And that's what our expertise is. So we hope to develop a retail version where an individual can call us. Truthfully, if somebody goes to the Care Scout website and they, um, our number is on there, if they need help, we would never say no to anybody. If somebody is at wit's end and needs help with something, of course we'll help them. Our model though right now is to bring it to the employer marketplace and build it out from there. I can, and I understand that. That makes actually excellent sense, but I figured it was worth asking. And as I said, we're, we're you know, the, my team that runs CareScout probably wouldn't love me to be telling people, nah, we'll take care of you, just call us. But truthfully, we're empathetic caregivers. Who would turn away a caregiver in their time of need, right? So if we can help, we're happy to do so. Awesome. I love that. It's a crazy, complicated world we're living in these days. I hope this episode has provided you with some insight, some information, and some tools to move forward so that you can balance caregiving, employment, and the 500 other things you have to do every week. I want to thank you for tuning in again. Be sure you're following me on all the social media platforms. The links are in the show notes. Also, definitely check out our completely revamped website. There is tons of information, including recipes from yours truly. We've put a lot of work into it to give you as much advice, tips, etc., that we possibly can. And as always, I'll be in your ears again next Tuesday.